Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. good to see you all, and it's good to be here. It's a little bit rough morning for me. I just found out that my brother-in-law, my older sister's husband, ha- passed away this morning. Um, it was expected. It was a situation where he had been declining pretty rapidly since we got to see him in July, which I thank the Lord for the opportunity to, uh, to, uh, to have been able to see him and spend time with him uh, before this. Uh, but I appreciate your prayers and um, it's interesting because uh, he was a pastor. When I was a child, uh, I remember him pastoring two small churches in New Jersey, two Methodist churches, and I watched him love his congregations well and care for them, even in difficult circumstances. And, um, and he's been an inspiration to me in my ministry. And so uh, there is no better place for me to be than here before you uh, on this day sharing with you the Word of God. And so um, as I think about my family and uh, I, I think about dinners, those, those family dinners that we have, those special occasions like uh, Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving, uh, we all love to gather and have those special meals together. They're significant and I think about one special meal, a significant meal that I had, and it actually happened when I was alone. I was living in Costa Rica after six months of being there. Uh, it was the 4th of July weekend, and I was able to go to the house of the ambassador, the ambassador's residence, for a 4th of July picnic to eat hot dogs and apple pie. And... Um, uh, I tell you, almost wept when I got there. I was so homesick. And just being there and being able to speak in English and eat hot dogs with a bunch of gringos, it just, it was, it was overwhelming for me because it connected with me with my identity, who I am and where I belonged. I was a, a foreigner in a strange land and I was able to enjoy that meal and connect with uh, who I am. And um, today we're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper functions in the same way. It is our identity. It, in this meal that we, that we partake of when we gather around this table, we find our place as we are strangers in a foreign land and we look forward to one day being home together in heaven with the Lord in the kingdom of God. This reminds us of that and it is a comfort to us. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church in the passage that Pastor Colin just read to us about the Lord's Supper and he gives these words of institution. He gives us information about how we are to partake in the Lord's Supper. And so today we're going to look at the pattern of the Lord's Supper. We're going to look at the practice of the Lord's Supper. And then finally, we're going to look at the problem uh, of the Lord's Supper that Paul is dealing with in this letter. So let's begin with the pattern. 
the key statement in the words of institution spoken by Jesus and then shared with the church by the Apostle Paul. It says, in this same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. Take it, drink it, take this bread, it's my body, break it, eat it. And without any context, we look at that and we say, that's just weird and a little creepy, isn't it? I mean, we're so churched, we're so immersed in Christian tradition that um, if you were to think about this from a non-Christian perspective, it is strange without under, understanding where this comes from. And so I want to take a little time to think about where this comes from, the ancient context in which this meal sits. Meals were part of the sealing of contracts among ancient people. And we have a great example of this in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 14, um, the Abraham rescues his nephew Lot from a group of marauding kings from the east who swept into uh, the Holy Land and they sacked the city of Sodom and they carried off Lot and his family and all of the riches of Sodom and they carried him off and they're, they're booking it to the Euphrates River and Abraham selects a group of black op operators and they head off after them. They attack them in the middle of the night and defeat this group of kings and reclaim all of the plunder, free Lot and his family, and head back to the Holy Land. The story picks up in the, the, the Valley of the Kings, the Kidron Valley, just outside of Jerusalem. And there, the king of Sodom meets up with Abraham and they need to negotiate the return of all of the things that belong to the king. And the mediator comes out, a guy by the name of Melchizedek. He is the king of Salem, the king of peace. He is the king of righteousness and he is priest of the most high God. Shadowy character. He comes out and he brings out bread and wine and places it before them and they negotiate how this is going to go and then they eat this meal together and seal this contract together this is the way these kinds of things went it's very interesting that in the moment that melchizedek shows up on the scene bread and wine are distributed in a meal of covenant because we know later on in Psalm 110 and later in the book of Hebrews especially, it's going to be clear that Jesus is connected with this shadowy figure from the Old Testament, Melchizedek, as Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So when these elements come together, participants are sealing a contract, a deal. And that's what's communicated in this meal. When we think about this meal for us, God has made a covenant with us. God has made a contract. Now, it's not a bilateral agreement. It's not an agreement where we do one thing and God does another if we keep up our end of the bargain. That's not the way it works with God. 
God makes bargain completely one-sided with us. And he says, I'm going to give you my son and he's going to pour out his blood and he's going to forgive your sins. If you will just come, if you will just receive him, then this promise is yours. This contract is yours and I will accept you and I will love you and I will defend you and I will forgive you. Case closed. And so this table represents that covenant, that contract that we have with God. This table also finds its origins in Moses, in the freeing of the people from Egypt to commemorate the Passover. You remember the story. Moses goes to Egypt to deliver the people of Israel, and he he unleashes from the hand of God nine plagues that completely devastate the economy and the religion of Egypt and the authority of the Pharaoh. And then he says the 10th plague is coming where a death angel is going to move through the land and he's going to kill all of the firstborn of Egypt. And the only way that you can be protected from this act of judgment is if you take a perfect lamb and you sacrifice it and you pour his blood into a bowl and then you paint that blood onto the doorposts of your house and you go into that house and you eat this meal together and during the night you will be protected from the judgment of God that is poured out on Egypt because of their sin and their, their rebellion against God. In Exodus chapter 12, this meal is institutionalized into the calendar of this new nation. But what did it mean? Well, of course, it reminded them of the salvation from judgment through the shed blood of the Lamb. It also signified a new beginning because Passover is their 4th of July for the people of Israel. It's when their nation was born. But not only that, it is the start of their calendar year. And so it represents the beginning of something new. It also reminds them of their release from slavery, of the new identity that God had given them as a people, and of their glorious future that was promised to them if they would follow him. That's what this table represents for us. The same things, it is a new beginning. It is freedom from our slavery. It is salvation from judgment because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It is a remembrance of our glorious future. This is the pattern that establishes the foundation for the Lord's Supper. Now let's look at the practice of it. Jesus now sits at this meal with his disciples the night before he goes to the cross. And he shares with them this meal and he takes the bread, the bread that symbolized their slavery in Egypt. And now he says, take this bread, which is my body, broken for you. Eat it and do this to remember me. Likewise, he takes the cup, that cup which was the symbol of the blood of that lamb that had given them their freedom. Now, the blood of the Lamb is Jesus himself. Immediately following the meal, Jesus goes to the cross. He goes to trial and then ends up hanging on a cross. 
It's clear when you read the Gospels that Jesus' life was not taken from him. He offered it up. He was the high priest who delivered the sacrifice. He is Melchizedek. But he is also the sacrifice himself. The, the priest and the sacrifice are one and the same as Jesus offers up himself for our sins. His shed blood will protect us from judgment. Paul now shares with the church these words that were, were to be used in the Lord's Supper as part of the worship that we celebrate when we come together as a body. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Sound familiar? It should. You've probably heard it at least once a month most of the days of your life, right? These are the words of institution. These are the words that are given to us by the Apostle Paul that were given to him by Peter and by John directly from the night in which Jesus was betrayed. And he passes them on to the church so that they will be a living institution. We don't have a lot of sacred items in our church. We don't have special candles. We only have these little fakies that go like this. We don't have special candles and we don't have stained glass windows and we don't have special prayer books that sit in the seats that we use. We don't have icons. But what we do have is a table. And this table sits in our church in the very center of our worship, doesn't it? It's right here in the middle. And it represents Jesus Christ. It is the center of our worship. And it is the focal point of everything that we do. Every word that is preached from this pulpit, from this platform, goes over that table. And as you hear it, you look over that table at us as we share with you the truth of the Scriptures. Every time we come to this table, every time that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the scripture says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I love this because the table, this ceremony, this ritual that we perform, it looks backwards, doesn't it? It looks back on the Lord's death and we remember all that Jesus did for us. But yet it also looks forward, doesn't it? It looks forward to the coming of Jesus again because we will continue to proclaim the Lord's death until he returns, amen? And that's what this table stands for, is that we will proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ until he returns. It looks forward and it looks backwards. How often should we do this? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. 
It looks to us from the book of Acts especially and also from some of the epistles that every time that the, that the, the body of Christ met on the Lord's day that they would share in the Lord's Supper. So it can happen every time we're together. Some churches do do it every time we're together. This church used to do it on the even first Sundays of the even months of, of the year. Um, it's a little convoluted, a little strange, but it worked, and we did it that way for years. Now we do it once a month. You can do it however, how often as you want. I like once a month, personally, because I think that if we did it every time, it would become maybe too commonplace. But if we did it just, you know, once or twice a year, we'd have to wait too long. And so once a month is good. It's a good timing, I think. It works well in the rhythm of life and worship, and that's why we do it once a month here at the Kirk. How should we do it? Some people do it with drinking from a common cup, right? When I was a kid, we used to use the little shot glasses. We used to use them here too, I think. Um, Little... Little shot glasses, come up to the altar, give a little shot, and the whole bit. Now we do it through intinction. It doesn't matter what way you do it. That's not important. The Bible doesn't specify exactly how it should be done. It should involve bread, and it should involve the fruit of the vine. Does it need to be fermented wine? Does it, should it be grape juice? That's another debate. Uh, talking and thinking about my brother-in-law one time when he was uh, when he was pastoring his little churches uh, I remember him telling the story that he and and my sister Angel were standing in the kitchen one Sunday morning it was communion Sunday morning and they had forgotten to buy the elements and they didn't have any grape juice on hand so what are we going to do and so they grabbed a jar of grape jelly and poured hot water and it mixed it up he said, you should have seen the faces of all the people when they took their little shot. I was like, <laughs> it doesn't matter, right? It's not magic. But this is what we do in commemoration of what God instructed us to do. It's a sacrament. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a sacrament before the Lord? Well, the Catholic Church has seven sacraments. And during the Reformation, Martin Luther and John Calvin and those guys, they boiled it down to two sacraments, two sacraments that they believed were commands from Scripture, from the Lord Jesus Christ, that we should do as part of our worship, one of them being baptism. And Pastor Aaron talked about that last week, about baptism being that first sacrament. What's interesting about baptism is that we do it once in our Christian life either as a baby or as an adult. But the idea is that it, it is once in your Christian life that you partake in that sacrament. But then, communion, the Lord's Supper, is a sacrament that's ongoing, that we do as we worship. There's a rhythm to it in our worship. And think about that in terms of those two sacraments representing our Christian life. There's one time when we come to the Lord, Right? when we make a decision to follow Jesus, a point of salvation, but then from that we continue on with a rhythm of, again, coming to the Lord. We have been forgiven once and for all, amen? But yet we come to the Lord and we 
and we remember that sacrifice and we confess our sins and we readjust and we clean and we go through this process and that's the, the rhythm of the Christian life and I think these sacraments speak to that. The sacrament is something that's done by the church. Now that doesn't mean that you can't take communion at home uh, every once in a while. It doesn't mean that we can't take communion to people who are shut-ins or uh, in the hospital. But the normal, regular use of the Lord's Supper happens in community when we're all together in the church, delivered by a pastor. Why? Because this is something that the church does for the body of Christ. This is something that we as a congregation, we as the leadership of the church, do for you to remind us of Jesus Christ. It carries special weight. It's not essential for salvation, but it is part of our obedience because it is a command from Jesus. Do this. Keep doing this to remember me. We believe that the Holy Spirit is present in a special way. The Catholic Church believed that the Holy, through the Holy Spirit that the actual elements were changed into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ himself, transubstantiation it's called. Luther said, no, not really, but the Holy Spirit is present. He's in and among the elements, and that's called consubstantiation. And we kind of take another step back from that and say, we really believe that the Holy Spirit is present when we come to the table in a special way. It's a sacrament. It's a command. It's part of our worship, and the Spirit is present in a special way. It's more than just a symbol. It goes beyond a symbol. It's something special, a special communion with the Lord that happens when we come to this table. Another special thing about this practice is the connection with the church throughout the ages. The Apostle Paul gave these words to the church in Corinth, in the first century A.D. And we, as the church 2,000 years ago, are repeating them and saying them and coming to the table just as they came to the table. It's something that connects us up with the church throughout the ages. And not only that, it connects us with the church across the oceans. There are churches today coming to the table, speaking these words in Spanish, in Mongolian, in Albanian, in languages all over the world. But it's the same words. It's the same table. It's the same meaning. And it, it unites us as the people of God. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Let's talk about the problem Let's talk about the issue that caused the Apostle Paul to give these clear instructions about the Lord's Supper to the church in Corinth. First of all, I want to give a little disclaimer. They were abusing the supper and they were misunderstanding it. Don't be too hard on them. They were pagans and they came to know Jesus and they brought all their junk and all their baggage into the church and we do the same thing don't we we bring our junk and our baggage into the church and sometimes we need correction 
So let's see what was the issue that they were experiencing. What was the abuse that was taking place so that we don't fall into the same trap? The scripture says that there was division among them. It says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. He says, you guys are a basket case. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you are going ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. So what was going on? Well, obviously the church in Corinth was a diverse group. Many of them were wealthy Greeks and many of them were poor, even slaves. And they would all come to church to worship together. And they would have a big feast together, a big meal together. And obviously, the wealthy were bringing their food with them. They cleaned out their refrigerators. They brought all of their food. And they had a feast. And they were drinking wine. And they were getting drunk. And they were having a wonderful time sitting with all their friends. And the poor were over there not having enough to eat at home, much less bring to the church to share. And Paul says, this is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. Worship isn't pleasing to God if there is no unity in the body. Let me say that again. Worship, our worship, is not pleasing to God if there's no unity in the body of Christ. It's easy and it's comfortable for us to have our groups in the church and not to get to know other people. We are not intentionally trying to slight others. But sometimes we just don't go out of our way to make people who are different, people who are new, people who are not like us feel comfortable in our midst. How many people have come to the Kirk, visited here with great expectation, and then drifted away because no one opened their circle of friendship to them and invited them in. How many people have walked away from this congregation and countless other congregations because we didn't open up our hearts and our lives to them? That's not worship. As we become a congregation that is more diverse. And we are becoming a congregation that is more diverse. Our community is more diverse. We are about to start a Hispanic congregation, and we're going to be bringing people who speak another language into our community of fellowship. Will they feel welcomed? Will they feel a part of us? I can tell you what it's like because I've experienced it myself. I lived in another country, And I went to church, and I remember feeling isolated, alone, and in many ways humiliated because I was different, and I wasn't invited in. And it's terrible, and it's difficult. And I can tell you, my wife, who is from another culture, has experienced the same thing in this country. It's important that we reach out. The Lord's Supper 
is our symbol of unity and equality. This table is our symbol of unity and equality. Why? Because when we come to the table, we're all the same. Amen? It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're black or if you're white. It doesn't matter if you speak Spanish or you speak English. When you come to this table, you are in need of God. You are in need of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, just like everyone else. This is the great equalizer in our faith. This is our identity. And so it reminds us of that each time we partake. Verses 27 to 30 call us to examine ourselves before we participate in the Lord's Supper. Buckle your seatbelts, this is rough. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. Wow. That's a powerful passage. What we do when we do it here at this table is important. And the Apostle Paul is saying there are consequences if we don't examine ourselves and take this seriously. It's very important. You see, our sins have been forgiven once for all. Amen? That was the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's what's pictured here in the body and the blood, in the bread and the wine. But the celebration of the Lord's Supper is a chance for us to pause and to check our heart, to check our personal holiness. When I was a kid, uh, I, I, I got my first car, and my first car was an old car. It was a 1968 Camaro. It was a cool car, but it was an old car. And if you've ever driven an old car like that, you know that every time you stop to put gas in it, you better start checking other fluids, right? You got to pull that dipstick because those things, I don't know what happened to the oil. It would leak out. It would burn out. It would evaporate. I don't know what happened, but those things leaked all the time. Am I right? Not only that, you'd have to crawl under every few times a year and squeak, squirt the grease into all of the little grease fittings all underneath the, the, the undercarriage of the car so that it would continue to function. You had to check the levels on a regular basis. And that's what this does for us. When we come to the table, we have an opportunity to check the dipstick of our heart and see where we are with our personal holiness, to check and see what's going on in our life. All of us have habitual sins. We have been forgiven. We do not stand condemned for the sins that we commit, even the sins that I'll commit tomorrow. I don't have to be afraid that I'm going to lose my salvation. Amen? But yet every time I come to this table, it affords me the opportunity to check and hold myself accountable and say, how am I doing? 
Am I working through these issues in my life? Am I working on these sins that so easily entangle me? It's built into our worship. We have this opportunity to check and see how we're doing. So now, as we come to the table, there are certain things that I want you to do. The first is check your spiritual dipstick. How's your holiness? The second thing I want you to do is check your unity with others. Am I focused on myself? Have I been completely focused on my own contentment and my own comfortability? Or am I reaching out beyond myself and beyond my group to include others into the body of Christ? Those who are new, those who are different, those who might feel alone, those who might feel humiliated. Am I bringing them into the circle of fellowship? It's a chance to check. Am I rejoicing in the covenant that God has made with me? Am I remembering that God has promised to save me from my sins, to unite me with him through Jesus Christ, that one day I'll be in heaven, not because of what I've done, but because of what he has done, not because of my ability to make promises, but because of the promises he's made for me. And then finally, am I remembering all that Jesus did? Am I remembering that he died on the cross for me? He shed his blood for me so that I might be forgiven. How much more should I sacrifice for others? How much more should I be a person of humility before others? Because I remember what Christ has done for me. Now we're coming to the table. Now we have the opportunity to put in practice what we've been talking about. And so let's go to the table of the Lord. A couple of instructions, the first of which is we celebrate the Lord's Supper by intinction, as I mentioned. That means the ushers will dismiss you by the rose. You'll come up here to the front. Leaders and elders of our church will will present you the, the elements. You take the bread, you dip it in the cup, you partake of the elements, go back to your seat and check your life. Examine your heart. Take advantage of this opportunity, the quiet of this moment to do business with God. If you are new to our church, we have an open communion table. It doesn't matter if you're visiting, if you are uh, from another denomination, if you are have never been a Presbyterian, don't even know what a Presbyterian is, that's okay. If you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, come to this table and participate in this act of renewing our faith in the Lord. Now let's take a moment and pray together as we begin that process of examination. Heavenly Father, we come before you with all humility grateful, Lord, for your grace in our lives and your mercy, your love. Thankful, Lord God, for all that Jesus is and all that he's done. And Lord God, we examine our hearts. Just as you've commanded us in your word to examine our hearts, we've begun that process to examine our hearts, Lord God. If there's anything that we need to ask forgiveness of, Lord, forgive us. Hear our confession before you. Let this be a moment 
when we readjust. Lord, meet us at this table. Meet us in a special way through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we've done for centuries, we repeat these words. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. And after having given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Take it. Eat it. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.